Amen. Young people, you are dismissed. Let's take our Bibles this morning. Please turn to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1 this morning. If you'll turn there, we're going to look at Judges 1. We'll get into Judges chapter 2 just a little bit. Judges chapter 1 this morning. The title of my message is called Forward and Yet Not Making Progress. You ever felt like that? Forward, you're moving forward, you're taking one step in front of another and yet not making progress. And sometimes progress is not measured by a distance that we've traveled. Sometimes we see things change in our lives and and we're going to see a generational change take place in the scriptures this morning that I think is indicative of us as a country and a lot of times us as Christians in our families and how each generation, though uh, we, we might see them saved and we might see them going to church, we see a, a shift in their lives and things that we allow in our lives. And, and I think sometimes as we become older, we become a little more, more mellow, maybe a little more permissive about certain things. And it's a danger that we need to be aware of because we will see in the scriptures what happens, the downward slope it takes. And so, yes, Israel was moving forward, but they really weren't making any progress for God. And so we're going to look at that this morning, Judges chapter 1. And, you know, sometimes I try to theme the song service or the worship time to go with my message. The problem is there's not a lot of songs in the hymn book about sin, about falling off, you know, and so uh, we, we don't want to glorify those things. So we'll sing and glorify the Lord, and then we'll preach the Word of God about sin and, and uh, the things that we'll look at this morning. And so Judges chapter 1, look there, if you will, this morning. Now, after the death of Joshua, just those first few words tell us there's a generational change that's about to take place. A new leader is coming on the scene. We've already seen it once, Moses and then Joshua. But understand with Moses and Joshua, they became leaders at about the same time. Moses was appointed to lead Israel out of Egyptian bondage, but Joshua was already on the scene. He had already seen the mighty hand of God. You'll remember that when they built the first tabernacle and Moses went in and met with God, Joshua, Moses left and Joshua stayed. He said, I want to be where God is. I want to be in the presence of the Lord. I want to be here if God speaks again, and I want to hear his voice. And so there was something special about Joshua, and so there wasn't a great shift in leadership. As a matter of fact, I think it could be argued that Joshua, in some respects, was a more powerful leader than Moses ever was. Moses was reluctant, wasn't he? He, he said, if, if, uh, how, how is Pharaoh going to ever listen to me? And, and God said, tell him that I am sent at you. What is that in your hand, a rod? And he said, but I stutter and I don't speak well. No problem, I'll give you the words or Aaron will speak for you. And, and so Moses was a bit reluctant and he made mistakes in the wilderness. Yet Joshua came on the scene full of faith and he led in faith. I'm not saying he was perfect, but of course we go back to Joshua and Caleb being the only two that believed God that they could take the land. And from that moment forward, God blessed the very ministry of Joshua. But now a change takes place. And the Bible says that Joshua, it came to pass that he died. And it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, come up with me into my lot, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go up with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him. As we read, we see kind of a great cooperation taking place. I, I wish we had more cooperation among the brethren like this, where Judah says, Simeon, you come and help me, and I'll come and help you, and we'll see some progress take place. 
But the story begins to turn very quickly in verse 4. And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they slew of them in Bezek 10,000 men. And they found Adonizek in Bezek, and they fought against him, and they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and Adonizek fled, and they uh, pursued after him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. I just made reference to that a couple weeks ago, and somebody said, where is that in the Bible? I want to read about that where they cut off their big toes and their big thumbs. Look at that. Verse 7. And Adonai Bezek said, Three score and ten kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table as I have done, so God hath requited me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now the children of Judah had fought against Jerusalem and had taken it and smitten it with the edge of the sword and of the city and set the city on fire. And afterward... The children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites that dwelt in the mountains and in the south and in the valley. And Judah went against the Canaanites that dwelt in Hebron. No, uh, now the name of the Hebron was Kerjathobarah, and they slew Sheshai and Ahamine and Talmai. And from thence he went against the inhabitants of Deber. And the name of Deber before was Kerjasopher. And Caleb said, He that smiteth Kerjasopher and taketh it to him, I will give. Exa, my daughter, to wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, to wife. And it came to pass when she came to him that she moved him to ask of her father a field. And she lighted up from off her ass, and Caleb said unto her, What wilt thou? And she said unto him, Give me a blessing, for thou hast given me a southland. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the nether springs. And the children of, Kenite, of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city, or palm trees, with the children of Judah under the wilderness of Judah, which lieth in the south of Arad, and they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they slew the Canaanites and inhabited Zepheth, and utterly destroyed it, and the name of the city was called Hormah. Let's have a word of prayer before we look at anything else. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us today. Help us to see that what is happening in the nation of Israel so far has been a blessing. Judah and Samir and conquering and doing well. But Lord, things are about to change. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see that the small compromises they made led to greater distance from God. It caused them a generational problem, Lord, that would exist even to this day. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be, as children of God to be careful of the things that we uh, per, are permissive about. Lord, I pray we never give place to certain things or try to justify sin in our minds. Lord, for we can see how it might destroy the next generation. So, Lord, I pray that you speak to our hearts. I need your help, Lord. There's a lot to take in this morning, and I pray that you might fill me with thy Holy Spirit. And, Lord, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The first chapter of the book of Judges recounts several years of Israel's history. As a matter of fact, when we get to chapter 2, you would find that it says, and Joshua died. He dies in verse 1 of chapter 1. He dies in verse 5 of chapter, or verse, I think, 7 of chapter 2. And, but it's a recount of what is going on. God is just reminding them in chapter 2 of what he told them before Joshua died. And then Joshua, he recounts his death once again. It's a literary style to reinforce what God was trying to teach the people. Now, the mission of the Israelites was clear. There's not been a secret that God would give them the land of Canaan. And you'll remember this far back as when Moses was alive. They spent 
12 spies in to spy out the land, and only two came back with a positive report. Joshua and Caleb said, we are well able to take the land. They believed God. The other 10, they they believed that the giants were too big, and they believed that the land was too rough, and that they couldn't possibly fight and take the land, even with God's help. And so God punished the people. They would wander a bit longer. And finally, as Moses has now died and Joshua is about to take the land, they fight many battles. But the mission has always been clear. Take the land and drive out the inhabitants. There was no room for ambiguity. There was no way to question God's command. Take the land and utterly drive out the inhabitants. As a matter of fact, we can look back in Numbers chapter 33, and I would encourage you to turn with me there, Numbers chapter 33, and look at verse 50. We see the command of God very clearly. And the Lord spake unto Moses in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye are passed over Jordan into the land of Canaan, then ye shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and destroy all their pictures. And destroy all their molten images. You say, why pictures? They were icons. They were pictures of their false gods. They were engravings. And also all of their idols. And destroy all their molten images. And, and quite pluck down all their high places. And ye shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell therein. For I have given you the land to possess it. And ye shall divide the land by lot for an inheritance among your families. And to the more ye shall give the more inheritance, and to the fewer ye shall give the less inheritance. Every man's inheritance shall be in the place where his lot falleth. According to the tribes of your fathers ye shall inherit. But if ye will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell, Moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. I think God's command is pretty clear, isn't it? All the way back in the life of Moses in Numbers chapter 33, he says, I'm going to give you the land to possess it. That's a foregone conclusion. It was always God's plan that Israel would dwell in the land of Canaan and that what we know today as Israel belongs to the Jewish nation. It is theirs according to the word of God. There's just no question about that. But God did understand, you may dwell in that land and not drive out the inhabitants. But if you do that, I may do to you what I was planning to do to them. There was a great curse. By the way, Numbers chapter 33 is not the first time God has given this plan. This is now the fourth time that God would give his instructions to the people of Israel. Now, turn, if you will, to Joshua chapter 1. Look at Joshua chapter 1. We're going to look at a little scripture here. And then we're just going to make a few points and we'll be done. Joshua chapter 1. Moses has died. Many years have passed. They've been wandering in the wilderness. The Bible says, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your feet shall tread upon, that have I given to you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river and the river Euphrates, all the lands of the Hittites and under the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. There shall not any man 
be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. The book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest do observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then shalt thou have good success. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage? Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. So God does not explicitly say to Joshua that you need to drive out the inhabitants of the land, but he says this, when you take the land, no man will stand before thee. I think Joshua already knew what the command of God was. He's heard it four different occasions. He knew that God's plan all along was to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And now God says, when you take the land, every place the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours. And no man, nobody will stand before thee. The failures that Israel experienced, we'll read about in a moment, were their own, not God's. For God had promised to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Now turn, if you will, to the end of the book, Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. We're going to read one more passage, and then we'll get right to our message this morning. Joshua chapter 24. Are you glad you're saved today? Amen. As valiant as Joshua would fight, there was still work to do at the end of his life. The book of Joshua is an accounting of all the time that Israel would spend fighting the land of Canaan, fighting the inhabitants of the land. And notice what he says in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 11. And he went over Jordan and he came unto Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you, the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I delivered them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drave them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites, but not with thy sword nor with thy bow. And I have given you a, a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which ye built not, and ye dwelt in them, and the vineyards and oliveyards which ye planted, uh, not do ye eat. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Mark that in your mind and in your Bibles, verse 16. God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up out of our fathers and our fathers of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage in which did those great signs in our sight and preserved in us, preserved in all the way wherein we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drave out from before us all the people, even the Amorites which dwelt in the land. Therefore will we also serve the Lord for he is our God. And Joshua said unto the people, you cannot serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. 
He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods. Then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you. After that, he hath done your good. And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said unto the people, Ye are witnesses against yourselves, that ye have chosen you the Lord, chosen you the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore, put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God, we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it upon there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it hath heard all the words of the Lord, which he spake unto us. It shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest, lest ye deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, every man into his own inheritance. We will read that same phrase in Joshua chapter 2, that Joshua let the people depart. So we know it's a recap of Joshua's life and death. But listen, we are now in Joshua chapter 24. We are at the end of Joshua's life. Judges chapter 1 and verse 1 will tell us that Joshua has died. And Joshua is saying to the people, though you have driven out many and the Amorites have fled from before you, you still dwell in the land of the Amorites. Isn't that a strange thing to say? If they have been completely and utterly driven out, would it not now be the land of Israel? But Joshua knew there was still work to do. As a matter of fact, after Joshua dies, we will read in Judges chapter 1, as we've already read, that the people say to God, what now? And God says to Judah you begin to drive out more people. It was a work in progress. It had not been finished in the life of Moses and not in the life of Joshua. They were still trying to inhabit the land and drive out the inhabitants thereof. And not just the inhabitants thereof, it was their false gods that were the problem. If they were a God-fearing people, I'm sure that God would have showed mercy. But God knew that by mixing with these people, it would contaminate the hearts and the minds of the people and draw them away after false gods if they were to intermarry with these people. Now, listen, we live in a very different day and age, and God was setting aside his people and sanctifying them. That's what the very word sanctify means, to set apart. They were his chosen people. And he did not want them contaminated with the false religions of this world. Hey, can I just take a side moment here and and say to the young people, you be very careful who you marry who you get tangled up with. There's a lot of cults out there today, the Mormons and the Jehovah Witness and the Seventh-day Adventists and all those, and they will compete for your heart. Be very careful who you get tangled up with. Let's just take a lesson from the life of the Israelites this morning. But notice as they begin to work and they begin to draw them out, I read verses 1 through 18 of Judges, and I would say this about those verses, so far... So good. So far, so good. Judah has enlisted Simeon to help him. We see a cooperation between the brothers. And they begin to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And God is blessing them. And they're doing exactly what God envisioned way back in Numbers chapter 33. And the Bible says in verse 18, And Judah took Gaza with the coast thereof, and Ascalon with the coast thereof, and Ekron with the coast thereof. And everything was going well. But look at verse 19. We see the first sign of trouble. And the Lord was with Judah, 
and he drave out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. The valley was a stronghold. There was chariots of iron. Now let me ask you this. Did Joshua, or did God say to Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread, except where they have chariots? He didn't say that. He told them in Exodus chapter 33 that they were to possess the land and utterly drive out the inhabitants of the land. Not only that, they were to remove all their images. They were to cast down their idols. They were to remove all the high places of worship. They were not to allow one person to stand because it would destroy the faith and the hearts of the next generation. They had a job to do. And so we see the first sign of trouble, and I want to characterize it this way, and I'm going to give you some things that, that would characterize these different groups of people. So after that, we see every tribe, after this time, after Judah and Simeon fail against these chariots, we see every single tribe after them begin to fail. Why is that? Notice, first of all, we see those who lacked courage. Those who lacked courage. In verse 18, he says also, or verse 19, and the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. I, I just simply call those those who lacked courage. Let me ask you, was this a failing on God's part or Judah and Simeon's? The Bible says the Lord was with Judah. The Lord was actively driving people out. As they drove those people out, I have to believe that they, they, they fulfilled the will of the Lord and they tore down their high places and they, they broke up their idols and they tore down the pictures and the images of these false gods and there was molten images as well. And I, I believe that every time they conquered a city, they must have had some sort of festival and they burn up all those idols and they just had a, a good time seeing God's victory as they drove out the inhabitants of the land. But the problem is the chariots of iron also had gods. Those that drove those chariots had idols. And those that had chariots had high places where they worshipped. And those, those places were not tore down. And those idols were not broken up. And those images were not cast down. And they were allowed to remain in the land. The question I have is this. How much did the failure of Judah contribute to the attitude of those that would follow? Just, just think about that. Perhaps later on we will read about Benjamin, we'll read about Naphtali, we'll read about some of their successes, but we'll also see their failures in driving out the inhabitants of the land. And I wonder in their heart if they said, well, Judah, Judah got away with it. To fight these battles comes at a great cost. There's bloodshed and there's loss of life and there's, there's injury and there's, there's heartache and there's pain every time we fight a battle. And, and though we normally come out victorious, we still suffer great loss as in any battle or any war. And if God did not punish Judah, perhaps we can tolerate some things as well. And so the people of Judah failed because they lacked courage and they would not fight those with the chariots. The Bible says in verse 20, and they gave Hebron unto Caleb. And Moses said, and he expelled thence the three sons of Anna. You want to talk about courage? Look at Caleb. How old is Caleb by this time? Does anybody know? He's at least 80 years old. 
He was one of only two people that were over 40 years of age that were allowed to enter the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. He's traveled for 40 years in the wilderness. He's at least 80 years old, and he says, I want that mountain. We sing that song, don't we? And he climbed that mountain, and he cast down the three giants of Anak. That's courage. But the entire army would not fight against the valley of the chariots. They were aware of the dangers. Were they not? They identified there's chariots of iron. We know it's a danger. We know that they can hurt us. We know if we go to battle, we may suffer loss. But let me ask you this. What happens when their children have to fight them? What happens when their grandchildren come up against them? The danger will always be there. Unless they were actively following God's will. The text clearly says they had the Lord with them, but they would not finish the battle. I would characterize those that lack courage as those who learn to put up with the sin of their neighbors. Those who are willing to tolerate having them in the land. We don't like it. We know we should drive them out. But we're going to learn to tolerate. Boy, doesn't that sound like our society today? Tolerance. Let's just tolerate. The truth is they'll tolerate anybody unless you're preaching the truth from a Bible. We just heard this week of a native reservation that's trying to drive out all Christian churches off the, their, their reservation. They want to return to their earthen religions. I don't know much about their religions, to be honest with you. I'm not trying to make commentary. But listen, if it can happen in any part of Canada, it can happen in all of Canada. People hate the Word of God. It is a rock of offense. And so though these people knew the danger, they were not willing to stand for what was right. But then as we read on, we see another group of people. We see those who lacked courage, but we see those who were complacent. Look what it says in verse 21. And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. Of all places, Jerusalem, God's holy city, the place that would be the very capital of Israel. The Jebusites dwelt there and Benjamin would not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. You see, at least the chariots of iron were down there in the valley. They lived over the hill and they lived down. Caleb has fought this great battle on the Mount Hebron. We've got the whole mountain, and down in the valley there's problems, so tell your children don't go down in the valley. Avoid that place. But Benjamin comes along, and he was complacent, and he was content to dwell with the Jebusites right in Jerusalem. You see what happens as generations pass? The oldest brother, he tolerated. But the next brother along that would go to battle allowed it to dwell right within them. Verse 22 to 26, we see that Joseph allows, in the house of Joseph, they also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph sent to describe Bethel. Now the name of the city before was Luz, and the spies saw a man come forth out of the city. And they said unto him, show us, we pray thee, the entrance into the city, and we will show thee mercy. And when he showed them the entrance into the city, they smote the city with the edge of the sword, but they let go the man and all his family. That's not what God commanded. So oh, they're showing grace, and they're showing mercy. They're showing disobedience. You hear me? 
We like to throw those words around. And listen, we want to be a church that shows grace. Because we received grace. Amen? Amen. But we need to obey God first. And these people had disobeyed God. And the Bible says in verse 25, And when he showed them the entrance of the city, they smote the city with the edge of the sword, but they let go of the man and all his family. And the man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and called the name thereof Luz, which is the name thereof unto this day. So again, we have Benjamin, now we have Joseph, and they're just complacent about God's commands. And they're allowing people to dwell there with them in harmony. Look at verse 27. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and her towns, nor Tanak and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Iblium and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. These were those who were warned of the dangers, but they were not convinced of them. They're saying, oh, Joshua, you're overreacting. I think Judah and Simeon knew in their heart they were to drive out everybody, and they came up to a place where they lacked courage, and they could not drive out those, those chariots of iron, so perhaps they warned their children, we'll stay on the mountain, you stay out of the valley, but now we see tribe after tribe saying, you can just dwell with us. You can build your own cities. We'll live with you in, right in Jerusalem, the Jebusites. And now tolerance has become acceptance. These were those who were not just putting up with it, but they were accepting those others and eventually would worship their false gods. But then I see a third group of people in verse 28. There were those who lacked courage and there were those who were complacent, but there were those who were cunning. Look what these people did in verse 28. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of uh, Nahalol, nor the Canaanites dwelt among them and became tributaries. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, nor the, of Elab, nor of uh, Agzib, nor of Hilba, nor of Aphek, nor of Rehob. But the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Bethshemesh, nor the inhabitants of Bethanath, but he dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, nevertheless inhabitants of Bethshemesh and Bethanath became tributaries unto them. Now we have a real shift. Judah and Simeon, because of a lack of courage, allowed some to stay down in the valley. The other tribes we read about up to verse 27 said, you can dwell among us and we'll just tolerate and we'll get along somehow. But now we have some that are cunning and said, no, we're going to have you serve us. We're going to embrace you. We are going to become one with you. And they became tributaries. But notice there's a phrase in there, when Israel was strong. I bet they had moments of weakness. God said that on purpose. Because they entered into this relationship thinking, I can handle it. We're strong. And we're not going to drive out these people, and we're not even going to uh, have them just dwell among us. We're going to have them live right in our homes. 
They're going to be servants. We're going to, we're going to have some of their young girls to be our maids, and we're going to have some of their young men to, to, to be our servants in our home. They're going to keep our sheep, and, they're going to, and we're going to dwell with these people. We're, going to, we're not just going to uh, allow them to stay in the valley, and we're not just going to accept them. We're actually going to embrace them because we're cunning. We're smart. Boy, we're a mess today in our society, aren't we? It's unfortunate, but sometimes in the house of God, we allow certain things. We preach about them for a while, but then eventually we embrace it. The methods of the world. I can't tell you how many church services. I, I try to watch some church services throughout the week. I'll have it playing sometimes while I'm working or what have you. And I like to watch some of my friends in their churches so I can maybe try to encourage them. If I hear something I like, I'll send them a note or whatever. It's just playing in the background while I study or whatever. Every once in a while, you know, that, that service will end and another service will kick on just automatically. And I'll think, oh my goodness, what are they doing? I saw a guy running around the platform with a squirt gun, squirting everybody with holy water. That was his COVID response to baptism. Just foolish as a circus atmosphere. And we start employing the methods of the world. And a hundred years ago, I said, we would never... We would never. We come in and we sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And today we're running around in ripped jeans and t-shirts and squirting people with skirt guns. In the name of Christ. You say, how does that happen? The same way Judah was tolerant, the next tribes were accepting, and the next tribes embraced. It's a downward slide. Now listen. I want, I want to be careful about something. Somebody will say that somebody who used to believe in a certain thing right here, and then they, they do some personal study and they grow a little bit, and they say, you know what, I, I don't think that way anymore. I think over here. And somebody said, well, they're a compromiser. Now, wait a minute. If they came to a genuine belief in their heart that that is not a Bible truth, that that was my preference and I made a change based on what the Bible says, that is not compromise. Instead, that is actually personal growth based on the Word of God. Compromise is when you know something to be true. You know something to be undebatable in the Word of God, and you choose to make a move, to change positions. That's what all these tribes did. It could not be any clearer, could it? Drive out the inhabitants of the land we don't want their false gods. You tear down their, and, and God got specific, tear down their, their pictures, their images, their molten images, their altars, their high places, tear it all down. God was explicit in his command. And the people said, eh, maybe it's just a suggestion. And they got to the point where they embraced it. Most certainly we can see a national application, can't we? <laughs> As a country, we have seen this for years. It was interesting. It was 18 years ago, in 2005, that they legalized homosexual marriage in Canada. That's what they did in 2005. 2015, it was in the United States. They legalized it. And they told us then, didn't they? Well, this won't affect anything. It doesn't change, doesn't change anything. Now today, you better embrace it or you're a bigot. Not only that, you better fly a flag and you better promote it and you better say it's okay. No, friends, it's sin. 
against a holy and righteous God. I want want to give you some good news. Maybe you're here today and say, well, I struggle with that, and how dare you? Listen, let me tell you this. God loves you too much to leave you in that condition. This is not a message of hate. It's a message of redemption. Christ died on the cross to pay the price for your sins, and he wants to save you from that wicked sin. And you say, why is this the one that gets so much attention? Because they demand it. They're the ones asking for the attention. It's an agenda to destroy our children in the next generation. And I wonder today how many, how many of our seniors out in our community, not even safe people, are shaking their heads and going, oh, we should have fought that battle when we were young. We should have voted for the right politicians, and we should have, we should have protested, and we should have signed petitions, and we should have marched to keep the sanctity of marriage right. When I was a kid, I remember when Dr. Henry Morgenthaler was being arrested. Do you know that Canada, I don't know if you understand this, Canada has zero laws restricting abortion. Nothing. If you go in hours before you give birth, you can abort that child. There's zero laws. And by the way, there are some places that are trying to get it enacted after the child is born. What a wicked nation. I wonder if there's some that said, we lived through that time 40 years ago. We remember when Morgan Tyler's clinic was getting bombed, and we remember this guy was getting arrested. Why didn't we stand up then? How could one man fight and change the nation? Why didn't we push back? It behooves us as the children of God to fight for the next generation. To be careful what we allow or permissive about that influences others. Christians have cried aloud for generations of allowing the permissiveness of sin, but the church has preached that we are headed to more and more secular time. What is the answer? Well, Christ is always the answer. We're obviously today, we're not going to take up arms and drive them out physically, but we could drive it out spiritually by leading souls to Christ. We are to be salt and light and influence in our society. But I want to make a more personal application than a national one today. We see the pattern revealed over and over again in our own lives, don't we? We put up with something, we tolerate it, we accept it, and then we embrace it. I've said this to my wife several times. Something will come up, some preposterous idea. Let me, let me just, by a show of hands, ask you this. If you are over 60 years of age, and maybe you want to raise your hand and admit that, but how many of you have said, I've seen things I never thought I'd ever see in my lifetime. Isn't it crazy? It's ridiculous. I, I'm thinking the same thing. I'm 50. It's crazy. Here, here's the thing. Where does it stop? I've said to my wife several times, you'll hear some preposterous idea on the news. Somebody, some politician is proposing something. I say, don't I? If they're talking about it today, I guarantee in 10 years it'll be law. They're going to pass that thing. Everybody in the House of Commons is angry and they think this guy's a nut bar. He is way out in left field. But mark my words, in 10 years it'll be law. And you'll be wrong if you disagree with it. That's the slide of society. But what about a personal application? We do the same. Notice in Judges chapter 2, and we're done. Look what it says. Now we get the recap. The, the angel of the Lord had come and he's reminding them of what has happened. 
And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. That's what tributaries is, by the way. It's a league. They've come to an agreement. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. The moment Judah began to compromise, God's hand of blessing began to be removed. He said, when you do that, I will, I will not drive them out from before you, and they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. We see the withdrawal of God's blessing. We see the continued nuisance of the world. He said there'll be thorns in your side. By the way, this, this is still happening today. Israel is cohabitated. The Muslim world is trying to destroy them from within. There are others that are living there that, that, that would destroy Israel if they could. And so they have the continuance thorn in their side. There is no nation on earth like Israel that is always on guard. Always. But then he says you'll have the temptation to follow their false gods. Their gods shall be a snare unto you. You say, well, that'll never happen in my house. I didn't think it ever happened in Israel either. People that came through the Red Sea and were sustained through the wilderness and knew the stories of the ten plagues of Egypt, how God with a mighty hand delivered them. You say, that would never happen to a people like that. Look at verse 11. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served who? Balaam. That'll never happen to my home. Just one book ahead. At the end of Joshua's life, he said, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do you remember what the people answered him? There's about four different times he said, we will serve the Lord. We will follow the Lord with all of our hearts. We will obey God. We will do this thing that God has commanded. We will drive out those false gods. We will serve God all the days of our lives. And in Judges chapter 2 and verse 11, it says they started to follow Balaam. How quick does it happen? In Joshua, Judges chapter 2 and verse 6, you'll read this. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. Doesn't that sound stunningly familiar to Joshua chapter 24? It's because it's a recap. This has just been one generation, and the nation is gone. God in his mercy would send judges to help this nation over and over again. Eventually, he'd appoint a king, first Saul, then David. But that's his mercy. Because he made them a promise that they would inhabit the land. But I think if you're reading scripture, you'll find that every time they fell, false gods were in their way. Because their hearts were following after that which was not of God. I'm just saying there's a pattern, and we must be careful not to repeat it. There's the things that we will tolerate, that we eventually accept, and find that we embrace, and it leads our hearts away from God to follow after false idols. I'm not saying that you might set up a, a Buddha in your living room, an altar to Baal in your sunroom, 
Well, let me ask you this. How many of you say, well, I, I, you know, I used to be real faithful to church, but now I've got these other things. I got, I got hockey games and I've got sports and I've got, now I got, I got to, I got to work. I got to make some extra money on Sundays. How many other idols do we have? Let's be careful. Definitely a slippery slope. Heavenly Father, help us, we pray. Be careful to lead our families, Lord, to follow after you. Lord, I, I think there's some grandparents in this room that I could let them get up and they'd preach it far better than I could. They say the things that we turned a blind eye to, our kids embraced. And now their kids aren't even in church. Oh God, help us, Lord, to be careful to follow the commands of the Lord. And to say with all our heart, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We'll set up no false gods before us. We'll make our relationship with the Lord our priority. We'll make the worship of God an, uh, an important thing in the lives of ours and our children. We'll be in church whenever we can. As much as possible, Lord, lifting up the name of our Savior. Oh God, help us, we pray. To be that person, to be that church that endures because we follow and obey the voice of our God. Lord, we need your blessing. We can't afford to have your hand shortened against us because of our sin. So God, I pray that you'd revive our hearts. Turn our eyes back to thee. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Our heads bowed and eyes are closed. If God has spoke to your heart, this altar is open. Maybe your summer provoked today. Pray for our nation. Pray for our families. There are no guarantees in this life, are there? You can say, I, I've done everything right. I've, I've tried to obey the Lord and I've tried to do the... And my, I still got a kid messing up. Everybody has a sin nature and ultimately they're responsible for themselves. But I never want to stand before God and say... No, this is your fault. <laughs> you didn't make it important to them. You didn't make it a priority. You didn't set the example. Let's do what we can. Let's keep our hearts right with God. Let's follow after Him and let's serve Him with our whole hearts and minds and our souls.